Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Which is a parallel passage to the one that we read earlier. Matthew 21. And let's ask the Lord to give us His grace to understand His Word and what He wants us to hear today. Our gracious Father, it is our joy and our privilege to approach Your throne. To come to this throne asking for help. We need help in in taking this familiar story and seeing what you want to say to us. How you want to challenge and encourage us. Because we realize that Jesus was in this context offering himself as the Messiah, the King for Israel. But we also recognize that You are offering Yourself to us as our King, our Savior, our Messiah. Lord, we ask that You will challenge us in what it means to live in light of Jesus as our King. And so, we ask that You will help us to have clear minds to understand, have soft hearts to be receptive to what you have to say to us today. And we'll thank you for how you're going to work. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. John MacArthur, in his commentary on this passage shares the contrast between a typical coronation of a, of a, a king or queen in our day and age, if you will, and that which is being portrayed in our text here in Matthew 21. He writes this, Those who hold the title of king or queen in modern societies are often rulers in name only, having little if any governmental power or responsibility. An elaborate coronation is often the only notice they will ever have of any consequence. But until modern times, the coronation of a monarch involved a display of great splendor and pageantry. The king would be dressed in the most expensive robes and jewels and would be driven through the capital city in an ornate carriage drawn by stately horses. Accompanying him would be his courtiers and foreign dignitaries and Following that would be a large retinue of the nation's finest soldiers. In many countries, high-ranking religious leaders would also participate. At the climax of the events, the king would be presented with a scepter or would stand on a sacred stone or participate in some other ritual signifying the transfer of power and authority into his hands. Musicians would play and sing and the crowds would break into spontaneous choruses of praise to their sovereign. Every part of the ceremony was designed to highlight the majesty, glory, power, and dignity of the king. At her coronation in 1838, Queen Victoria of England wore a crown encrusted with giant rubies and sapphires surrounded by a 
309 carat diamond. Her scepter was capped with an even larger diamond cut from the Star of Africa and weighing 516 and a half carats. Matthew 21 portrays the most significant coronation the world has yet seen. But it was a coronation in marked contrast to the kind just described. It was a true coronation of a true king. He was affirmed as king and was, in a sense, inaugurated in his kingship, but there was no pomp, no splendor, and a nondescript sort of pageantry. Traditionally, this coronation has been called Jesus' triumphal entry, and it was his last major public appearance before his crucifixion and was an extremely important event in his divine ministry on earth. And so we see that Jesus is presenting himself as he rides into Jerusalem as the king. There was singing, there was praise, there was a quoting of scripture. But not everybody that was there that day responded the same way. There were different levels of understanding of what was going on. And as we, we this morning look at the different responses that these different groups had, we find a representation of the way that people respond to Jesus even today and His offer to them as Messiah, as King, as Savior. And so this morning as we look at this, I want to point out these different responses and and challenge us as we think about what does it look like for us to live in light of Jesus as our King. So let me go ahead and read Matthew's account. And I'm going to read a little further than what Mark, Mark uh, shares. I'm going to read down through verse 17 of Matthew 21. Verse 1 through 17. We read, And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there, and a colt with her. Untie them, and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place that was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid on them uh, their garments on which Jesus sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road and the multitudes going before Him and those who followed after were crying out saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer you are making it a robber's den. 
And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast prepared praise for thyself? And he left them and went out into the city to Bethany and lodged there. So here we see different individuals or groups responding to Jesus' offer as their king. We're going to start from the, from the back and work forward. So we're going to start with the religious leaders and their response to this offer. We see there in verse 15, they became indignant. They were upset. They were angry at what was going on. Now it's possible it's because they had a better understanding of what was being done here than maybe the average person because they knew the Scriptures. They recognized that this was a presentation in fulfillment of prophecy. And they didn't like what they saw. D.A. Carson, in his comments on this passage, explains it this way. He says, The chief priests and teachers of the law express indignation, not so much at what had been, that has been done, as to the acclamation he was receiving for it. The children cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David. And if Jesus is prepared to accept such praise, then the wonderful things he is doing must have messianic significance. When challenged, Jesus supports the children by quoting Psalm 8, verse 2, introducing it with his, Have you never read? Which exposes the theological ignorance of the Scripture experts. God has ordained praise for himself from the children and infants. Jesus' answer is a master stroke and simultaneously accomplishes three things. Number one, it provides some kind of biblical basis for letting the children go on with their exuberant praise and thus stifles for the moment the objections of the temple leaders. Number two, at the same time, thoughtful persons reflecting on the incident later, especially after the resurrection, perceive that Jesus was saying much more. The children's hosannas are not being directed to God, but to the Son of David, the Messiah. Jesus is therefore not only acknowledging His Messiahship, but justifying the praise of the children by applying to Himself a passage of Scripture applicable only to God. And thirdly, the quotation confirms that the humble perceive spiritual truths more readily than the sophisticated. The children have picked up the cry of the early procession and lacking inhibition and skepticism, enthusiastically repeat the chant, arriving at the truth more quickly than those who think themselves wise and knowledgeable. How true that is, isn't it? And this is why Jesus said you must, you must have the faith of a child. See, the more we know, the more skeptical we tend to become. Certainly the more discerning we can be. 
But here we have these men who have a certain perspective on what Messiah was supposed to look like. How he was supposed to act. And Jesus didn't fit that box they had. Now before we're too hard on them, realize these men were taught by other people who had a perspective, who passed that perspective on. And so they've learned the scriptures from certain people who had certain bias and certain perspectives. And this has been passed down generation to generation. The critical issue is not so much what they were taught, but that they were now too proud, and that pride blinded them from seeing the truth because it didn't fit their box. And so we see not only did they become indignant, but they wanted to stop him. And we see this as we go to another um, parallel passage in John's Gospel. Uh, in verse 19 it says, after, after all this went on, it says, And the Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see that, that you are doing no good. Look, the world has gone after him. And in Luke's, again, Luke's account of this, the Pharisees said to, the, uh, said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They wanted to stop the praise. They wanted to stop this procession. They wanted to stop all that was going on here because they recognized that the people were proclaiming and acclaiming Him to be Messiah in fulfillment of the prophecies, even though the people themselves didn't really understand all that they were doing. So they wanted to stop it. It's not right. It shouldn't be. This is heresy. Because Jesus didn't fit the box that they were taught. This is a challenge to us. right? Now we, we can understand this. If you grew up in the church, you can understand this. That you know, when you're taught certain biblical stories when you're a child in Sunday school, they don't teach you everything. Like when I learned about the story of of uh, uh, Noah and the Ark as a little child, man. That was a, a neat story about animals. It was a cool story about how God delivered his people. I don't remember learning anything about the, the judgment of God on the world. That was kind of negative. So, you know, little kids, you want to teach them about the animals. And, and maybe it was taught to me, but that's what I remember is the positive stuff. And how great it was, all the animals and all of that. As I got older and read the Scriptures, I realized there's more to the story. And I was able to gain a better understanding of what was going on there. And so you have these men who are taught. The problem is not that they weren't taught everything. None of us are taught everything and we kind of grow along the way, it's that they stopped being teachable. They stopped learning, receiving, and being open to truth. They thought they had a handle on it, and nothing else fit that. And this can be a problem. We see later in the, in the text in verse 46 of, of, of Matthew's Gospel, 
uh, chapter 21, that they feared the multitudes. They were concerned more about their public appearance and external things than they were with being open to truth. We have to be careful of those things. Well, then we come to the multitudes. We see their response. We see that they praised Him with their lips. Right? They, they threw their garments on the road and, and, and cut branches and threw them on the trees and, or on, on the ground. And, uh, and they cried out. And they quoted Scripture. Quoted Psalm 118. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. They praised Him. Hosanna! Right? Which means save us now. They probably didn't understand all that was going on here. They probably thought, many commentators believe that they were looking to Him to be the military Savior to deliver them from the oppression in Rome. In fact, the Cornerstone Biblical Commentary says this, the scene played out as Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, a very familiar one, a conquering king parades triumphantly into a city with all the trappings of glory and power. But there is something very strange about this triumphal entry. The king was clothed plainly, not in royal robes or in full military splendor. He rode an unpretentious young donkey, not a dashing warhorse. He was meek, not militaristic. His entry sent mixed messages, and it is no wonder that all Jerusalem was perplexed about the, his identity. Paradoxically, Jesus' entry combined the trappings of power and glory with the imagery of humility. For throughout His ministry, His teaching and example exalted humility and downplayed pride. The triumphal entry epitomizes the upside-down values of the kingdom. Jesus radically shifted the world's paradigm of greatness, showing greatness to be found in humble service, not arrogant rule. There's much irony in the shouts of the crowd. They were at the same time correct and incorrect. They were correct in ascribing messianic language to Jesus, but incorrect in their understanding of the meaning of that language. They rightly quoted messianic texts like Psalm 118, but they wrongly thought of their Messiah as a conquering military hero. And this is not surprising since even the disciples struggled to fully grasp what was going on. They praised Him with their lips. They said the right things. But we also see they misunderstood His offer as Messiah. What the multitude say when the question was asked in verse 10, Who is this? Verse 11, they say, Oh, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. The prophet. Oh, he is much more than a prophet. Probably many in the crowd had come from Galilee and making their way to Jerusalem for the, for the festival of, of the Passover. And so they were, they were pretty proud of the fact that this, this guy who was getting all this acclamation was from the same place they were. So, yo, well, this is the prophet, and he's from Galilee. He's one of us. We also see 
John reveals that some of the crowd were there when Lazarus was raised from the dead. And it says, And the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him because they had heard that he was performing this sign. He had performed this sign. Many were probably looking to see a miracle. Looking, maybe they, something could happen for them. Maybe Jesus would do something that would benefit their life. They misunderstood what he was offering. Then we have the disciples' response. We see that the disciples, verse 6, went and did just as Jesus had directed them. They obeyed his directions. They did what he told them to do. He said, I want you to go. There's two of you. I want you to go into the, the city and I want you to get, uh, you'll see a, a donkey tied there and, and, and the colt. I want you to untie them and bring them to me. This is the only account of the four that tells about the uh, the mother donkey. Now, all the others talk just about the colt, but apparently there were two. And, and so he sent them. And he said, if anybody asks you why, you just say the Lord has need of them. And they'll bring them. Or they'll let you have them. And, and it happened just as Jesus had said. Everything happened exactly the way Jesus said it would. How did that happen? Well, it's possible that Jesus beforehand had a conversation with the owner of that donkey. He said, the time is coming when I'm going to need this. Um, and I have it. And when I send my disciples, they'll come and you just... You know, that's very possible. It's also possible that Jesus, because He's sovereign, because He's in control of all things, this came about. Because Jesus said, go do this, and then it happened. Maybe it's a combination of both. I, I, we don't know. We do know Jesus was capable of bringing about even if he hadn't had that conversation. They obeyed his directions. Again, in John's Gospel, we're told they did not really understand what was going on. He says these things his disciples did or did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things were written of Him and that they had done these things to Him. It wasn't until after the resurrection that they had a better understanding of what was happening here. And isn't that just the way it is? A lot of times we don't know what's going on right now. We don't know what God's up to. It's only after the fact we look back and we see the hand of God moving and directing through all those situations. But we, when we're in it, we don't see it. They obeyed His directions, even though, secondly, they did not understand His actions. They didn't fully grasp what was happening, why this was going on, what Jesus was doing. In fact, they probably were thinking, is He crazy? Because remember when Lazarus had died in, in John 11, just a chapter before John reveals this story. 
we see that Jesus was going to go there, and they said, well, wait a minute, you know that they want to kill you, right? You go there, and, and we're all going to die. So they're probably thinking, at least some of them are thinking, why would Jesus make a public spectacle of himself going to Jerusalem? They're going to kill him. And they weren't wrong, right? They're, they're, they have no idea what, why Jesus is doing what he's doing until later they understood. And yet, they trusted him enough to do what he said, even though they didn't fully understand. You ever been in that kind of situation where you feel like God is saying, you, you see the scripture, you know the directive, and you, but you're like, wow, I don't, I don't know. Think about what would have happened if they didn't obey him? What would have happened if they had got over to this place, they see the donkey tied there, and they, and they see the owner sitting there, and they think, man, if I untie that donkey, they're going to come and arrest me. I don't know. Let's just go back and tell Jesus we couldn't find him. Have you ever been in a situation where you, you got there and you thought, I know I'm supposed to do this. I just don't know how this is going to turn out. It's, gonna, it's gonna look, not going to look good for me if I step into this. What? And we find excuses for not doing what we believe we should be doing in that moment, what the Holy Spirit is prompting us, what we know what the Scripture teaches. I can tell you this, had they not done that, this story wouldn't have taken place, at least not when it did. We have a part to play in what God is doing. They obeyed His directions, though they did not understand His actions. They trusted Him, even though they didn't fully know what He was up to. Great example for us. Well, there's one more response I want to share and it's kind of an unlikely one because it's not a person. It's the donkey's response. And it's the best one yet. Because we're told in, in Mark's reading that I read earlier, as well as in, in uh, I think, Luke's, Luke's account, that this colt had never been ridden. No one had ever sat on it. And from what I've read, and in talking to people who have donkeys, you don't just hop on a, a donkey that's never been ridden. They kind of don't like that. The fact that, first of all, these animals went with these strangers. You've all, we've all heard stubborn as a mule. The fact that they went and the fact that Jesus rode on a, a, a young donkey that had never been sat upon through a crowded streets and, and through all these people and was able to control this thing tells us something about the donkey. The donkey yielded to Jesus. Yeah, certainly. It tells us something about Jesus too, doesn't it? Jesus has control. But there's a yieldedness that we see in the donkey to Jesus. 
One commentator said, Jesus rode on the colt, a young male donkey, not its mother. It would have been remarkable that Jesus was able to control a presumably unbroken animal, moving through an excited crowd with an unfamiliar burden on its back. It's just one more demonstration that Jesus is the Messiah, who's the master of nature. If he could bring peace to Israel, surely he could bring peace to Israel if he could calm a young colt. But there's a yieldedness to Jesus that we see displayed by this donkey. I would say just like Balaam's donkey, this donkey's speaking to us, though it's not speaking audibly. It's speaking about what it looks like to receive Jesus as king. We yield to him. We submit to his authority. The second thing we see about the donkey is it was useful to Jesus. The Lord has need of it, is what he told the disciples to say. This donkey is useful for the Lord. There's nothing special about this donkey. We don't know much at all about, we don't know the owner's names. We don't know the name of the donkey. We don't know where the donkey came from. We don't know his bloodline. We don't know anything about the donkey. Why? Because it doesn't matter. The only thing we know is the donkey was available. Yielded to Jesus and useful. And so as we think about these different responses, we see that some people, like the religious leaders, will criticize Jesus and those who follow him because they want him to fit into their understanding, their thinking, and their lifestyle. They don't want to change. They want Jesus to change. But we know Jesus isn't going to change. He's the king. So they resist. And so the question is, are you resisting what God wants to do in your life because it doesn't fit with what you want to do? Because with, it doesn't fit with the way you want to live your life. Some people, like the multitudes, will praise Him with their lips as long as there's some chance that He may do something beneficial for our lives here and there. We're hoping this one who raised Lazarus from the dead is going to do something. And we'll praise Him as long as we can hold out hope that some good, some blessing, some wonderful thing is going to happen. And there are groups of people within the broad scope of Christendom, if you will, that believe that if they praise Him hard enough and if they believe with all their heart that God's going to do all these wonderful things in their life, the health and wealth gospel. And what happens in some cases with people like this is that because Jesus doesn't come through for them because He never promised to do those things, they get disillusioned with Jesus and with the church and anything to do with this, and they walk away. 
because they did not have an understanding, just like the multitudes of that day didn't have an understanding of who he really is. You don't tell the king what to do. The king tells you what to do. There are some people like the disciples who will obey him even when they don't know the whole plan because they trust him. They trust him. We're all in those situations at times. And then some people, like the donkeys, will yield their lives to Jesus as their king. Let him have complete control over their lives and will follow him wherever he leads. Will be available to him to be used as he sees fit. A few weeks ago, I came across this psalm for Palm Sunday. And let me, let me conclude with this. It says this, King Jesus, why did you choose a lowly donkey to carry you to ride in your parade? Have you no friend who owned a horse, a royal mount with spirit for a king to ride? Why choose a donkey, small, unassuming beast of burden, trained to plow, not carry kings? King Jesus, why did you choose me, a lowly, unimportant person, to bear you in my world today? I'm poor and unimportant, trained to work, not carry kings, let alone the king of kings. And yet you've chosen me to carry you in triumph in this world's parade. King Jesus, keep me small so all may see how great you are. Keep me humble so all may say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, not what a great ass he rides. You know, when it comes to the donkey, we can say, maybe using King James language, any old ass will do. And you know, it's not just true of donkeys. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much knowledge you have. It doesn't matter how much experience you have. It doesn't matter how much capability you have. It's about availability. Are you available to Christ for Him to work in and through you to accomplish His purpose, whatever that might be? Yes, He works through experience. Yes, He works through knowledge and, and, and understanding and, and understanding of the Scriptures. He works through those things. But He doesn't need any of that. He can use a dumb donkey to accomplish His purpose. To present Jesus. He can use you and I. Too often, if we're honest, we use excuses like, well, I don't know enough. I don't know I can answer every question that someone might have. What if this? What if that? I'm not capable. It doesn't matter. He is. And I don't know how much time any of us have left to, to be useful to the Lord and His purposes. And it doesn't really matter because today, is a gift, right? And let's live today for His glory. Let's live today in yieldedness to Jesus. 
And then if He gives us tomorrow, let's get up and let's commit to living the next day for Jesus. Let Him work. Gracious Father, thank You that You don't choose us because we're all that. You, You choose us because You love us. You want us for Yourself. And You have all the capability that is required. And as You work in us, as we abide in Christ, You can accomplish all that You intend to accomplish. Well, we might think, well, that's, that doesn't seem real significant. It doesn't matter what we think. It's what You want to do. And Lord, I thank You for the, the many people throughout history who were insignificant in their own right. But were significant to the Kingdom of God because they yielded themselves to Jesus. And Lord, You're not finished yet. You have us here for a reason. And until the day You call us home, or Jesus, You come back, may we yield ourselves anew each day. As Jesus said, anyone who wishes to follow after me, Lord, may we wish to follow after you. May it be the desire of our heart. We'll deny ourselves daily. We'll take up our cross and we'll follow you. Oh, Lord, have your way and do your work in us and through us as we yield to you. Ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.